thank you that you have the most extraordinary plans for us, God, to bring good, God, to um, for us to know you intimately and personally, God, to bring restoration and healing and, and peace and joy and abundance in our lives. So we just totally welcome everything you would do in our hearts this afternoon, Holy Spirit. We thank you that your anointing is upon Peter, that as he speaks, Lord, that you are just um, ministering, speaking, bringing revelation, opening the um, the eyes and the ears, God, not just of our mind, but our hearts. So we open ourselves to you, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, and we're so very thankful for Peter. We just bless him abundantly, extravagantly, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Mel. All right. Um, So uh, let me just, for those that weren't here this morning, quickly get you onto the same page so that it makes sense uh, where, we're, where we're going to go this afternoon. Um, so my big idea is how do we bear witness to the kingdom of God? Uh, the reason why I think it's an important conversation is because Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he spent talking to the disciples about the kingdom. Um, we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come. So if the kingdom was to come, what would we see? Uh, many of us haven't actually stopped to think about that. We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if we're seeking the kingdom, what are we seeking? What are we looking for? Uh, so the, the kingdom, it would appear, is really important to Jesus and to the early church. Uh, if we're going to be people of the kingdom, we need to be able to define it. Very simply, the definition is in the word. Uh, it's the king's domain. Kingdom means the king's domain. When it comes to uh, the kingdom of God, I've suggested that the definition of the kingdom is where the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority exists. And so where the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authorities exists in my life, in the life of the church that I am a part of, in my family, in my workplace, in my community. So where we would see the kingdom, if we're looking for something, we're looking for the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority. If that's what the kingdom is, excuse me, I'm going to kill a fly. Um, then uh, we need to ask ourselves, what's the activity of the kingdom? And I've suggested the activity of the kingdom is restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be. And so God's original intent was that every human being would live in his family. And so as we pursue salvation for people, we're restoring them back into the family of God. That was what God originally intended for them. Healing is the same. God originally intended that there would be no sickness because there's no sickness in heaven. And so when we pursue healing, we're restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended to be. We're seeing the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority coming to bear in those spaces. And so uh, I've been exploring with those ideas in mind, what are some of the things that we'd want to see restored back to the way that God originally intended them to be to bear witness to the kingdom to our local communities? Um, what would it be that they would see that would cause them to go, you're part of a different kingdom to the kingdom that I am a part of? 
And uh, so the first thing that we looked at this morning was restoring uh, the, the place of love. Um, and that love, uh, there's a way that God loves us, that he wants us to love, other, in how he wants us to love other people, that needs to be restored. And we looked at how it was broken, and we looked at what needed to be restored. Um, I just want to take... No. Sorry, it's, uh, it's my phone. I don't know why Siri... I never speak to her, so I don't know. She does this occasion. Uh, nothing, nothing's up, Siri. Just go away. <laughs> What's up? Um, uh, so d- just finishing off the love conversation for those that were here this morning. Um, if we turn... if uh, Where did my Bible go? Here it is here. Uh, if we go to John chapter 1, John chapter 3, I just want to illustrate that the New Testament church uh, understood the place of restoring love, the way that God loves, back to the way it was originally intended to be. And the New Testament church understood when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, teach them to observe or obey all that I command you, that they actually understood he was referring to the New Testament commandment, not the two Old Testament commandments. So 1 John chapter 3 verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And so we know we've been born again. We know we've passed out of darkness into light. We know we've passed out of death into life because of our love for the brethren. So in the New Testament, their mark of salvation was love. Now, I came to faith through an altar call, so I believe in altar calls. But the mark of my salvation wasn't that I prayed a prayer on an altar call. That's not what happened in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the mark of someone's salvation was that they were loving differently. It's because of the way that they loved. So let's think about Zacchaeus. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at that in a minute. But Zacchaeus came to faith, um, verse 9 of Luke uh, 17. Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. How did Jesus know salvation had come to Zacchaeus? I don't think Jesus said, let's all bow our heads and if you'd like to give your life to me today, just raise your hand and I'm going to lead you in a prayer of salvation. That wasn't what happened. Something happened in Zacchaeus' behaviour and so Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm going to return a whole bunch of stuff that I've stolen. What did Jesus see? He saw an act of love. He saw an act of love that wanted to bring restoration where there had been damage. And so today salvation has come to this household. Jesus was able to see salvation through an act of love. And in the New Testament, it was the same idea for them. Uh, If we go over to um, uh, verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And so John here is again pointing to this New Testament commandment in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He rewrote the second of the two great commandments. And so in the New Testament, they, they understood that this issue of love and restoring love back to the way that God originally intended it to be was the marker that would draw all men to Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you love one another as I have loved you, people will know you are my disciples. I'm not sure that people look at us and go, you're a disciple of Jesus because of the way that you love. 
They certainly don't do that with the church. Um, And so the next verse, though, is really important. Verse 24 of 1 John chapter 3. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. The word keeps here is really interesting. So when we think of the word keep, we tend to think of the word obey. But the original word doesn't mean obey, it means protect. And so I want you to imagine I'm at home on Sunday with Lynn, uh, our three children, their spouses, and our nine grandchildren. We're all having a meal together. Somebody comes to the door and they've got a machete and they want to come in and kill everybody. Being the strong alpha male that I am, I say to my son and my two son-in-laws, put all of the women and children in the bedroom to keep them safe, to protect them. And so the word keep here means to protect. And so what are we doing to protect love has been the most important things in our lives. Because that's what John is saying. The one who keeps, the one who protects his commandment abides in him. And so, so my uh, conversation in the first session this morning, or that bled into the second session as well, um, is that the New Testament understood that if they could just restore love back to the way that God originally intended it to be, that we love from acceptance, not performance, that we love because we're God's creation and every other human being is God's creation. That's why when we give a cup of water to somebody, we're giving it to Jesus. That, that we, we begin to think about love as being the central issue of our spirituality and that how I love is the central issue of my spirituality. And so how I love my enemies how I bless those who curse me, that, that Jesus is actually saying the centre, and then John understood as well, the centre of our spirituality is restoring love back to the way that God loves. Not human love, but the way that God loves. Uh, we also find in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul saying, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith and a good conscience. And so Paul is declaring that everything that they're doing is about love. The goal of our instruction is love. And so that's why I use the illustration of the bicycle wheel and the hub that we teach on forgiveness, but it's a spoke. We teach on giving, but it's a spoke. We teach on prayer, but it's a spoke. It all goes back to the issue of love. I forgive because I know how much I'm forgiven because of love. I pray because I know how much I'm loved and I want to talk to the one who loves the most, loves me the most. I worship because I know how much I'm loved, so I want to worship the God who has chosen me and forgiven me for all of my sin. And so, so the hub is, is love. And that's what Paul is saying, is that the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. So everything that Paul and, uh, and his mates were trying to achieve was to get people to value love above everything else to value love in the way that Jesus said, guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much I love you so that you can love other people in the same way. What happens for those of us that are church people is that we tend to take our eye off the centrality of love and we tend to put it on our attendance or our commitment or our service, which is really great. I celebrate all of that. Clearly, I'm a church leader. I've you know, spent 30 years of my life building a church. So I'm not denigrating those things. But what I am wanting to say is that my commitment is because I love God, not because I'm trying to build a church. My commitment is that I serve because God has served me through Jesus and I want to serve 
on the same basis. I just happen to be doing it with a community of faith that God has called me into because our faith is meant to be expressed inside of a community, not on our own. Because there's stuff in our lives that we can't see that we need other people to help us to see so that we can be transformed and can become like him. So I just wanted to finish off this morning's conversation with those ideas that the New Testament uh, people actually understood the centrality of love and the importance of restoring love back to the way that God originally intended it to be if we're going to bear witness to the kingdom through the way uh, that we actually love. And uh, that, that's a really important thing for us to think about. Okay, the next thing that uh, I think that we need to restore back to the way God originally intended it to be if we're going to give bear witness to the kingdom um, is the power of oneness. We need to understand that oneness is really important to God and that oneness is the flip side of the love coin, that when we're loving, we're actually pursuing oneness with other people. Um, this was really driven home to me uh, through Revelation, but also through, so through an experience that I had uh, in Adelaide uh, last year. So in March of uh, 2018, uh, the first visiting ministry trip that Lynn and I had uh, was to go to Adelaide. Uh, we travelled together there to go to a church that I've been to a number of times before. Uh, when we got off the plane and we were standing at the baggage carousel, our bag was the very first bag to come out. Um, this has never happened to me before and it's never happened again. I would imagine that I travel at least more than anybody else in the room and if not more, I'm going to be pretty close to it. I travel a lot. This year I've done nine international trips and 12 here in Australia. And so I know baggage carousels really well um, and my bag has never come off first and it's never come off first again uh, since that time. So for some reason it was like I heard this still quiet voice say, take note. We then went to where we were staying. We were staying in some accommodation uh, on one of the beaches in Adelaide, if you can call them beaches. Um, and uh, that's a very biased Sydney comment because there's no beaches in Melbourne either. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so we went to a group of six units and we were staying in unit number one. I said to Lynn uh, that afternoon, I bet you when we go out to dinner tonight we're going to be seated at table number one. So we went to a restaurant that had 23 tables and we were seated at table number one. <laughs> this is the language of the Spirit. This is the way that God communicates with us. And, and so I'm now going... All right, what are you trying to say? There's something here that you're wanting to communicate with me. Um, I was starting to pursue this idea that it was oneness because I've been in and around the John 17 that we would be one just as the Father and Son are one so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. And so I'd been meditating in that and wrestling with it and trying to understand the power of it because Jesus, it was one of the parts of his final prayer. Um, and so I'd started to move towards this idea of oneness. When we came back from Adelaide, it got landed completely. Standing, I fly virgin um, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, which I don't need to defame Qantas with. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and was standing uh, at carousel number two. The television monitor said that's where our bags were coming off. Um, other passengers that I recognised from the plane were standing around carousel number two. You get pretty savvy at looking at the baggage tags and being able to see in that small print just whether it is, you know, the right carousel. So ad bags from Adelaide were coming off. Somebody, in the carousels in Virgin in Melbourne are really tightly compressed together. 
And so somebody had got their bag and was pushing past behind me and so I turned around to make sure they had enough room. And on carousel number one, there was only one bag. And it was mine. The God's really got my attention right now. <laughs> and so, uh, so from that point, I felt the Lord saying to me very clearly, wherever you travel, I want you somewhere to talk about oneness and the importance of oneness to me. Um, and so that's in part why I'm, I'm unpacking this in this context this afternoon. Uh, and so there's a restoration back to oneness. So if we're restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be, it assumes that something's broken and it needs to be restored. And so that's why this morning I talked about the fact that our love is broken because of a commitment to performance and the way that we give and receive love. And we need to fix that brokenness and restore to acceptance. So this afternoon uh, I want to talk about what's broken in the area of oneness so that we know what it is that we're actually restoring. Uh, so in Luke chapter 19, as I said before, um, we read the story of uh, Zacchaeus. And uh, as I've already quoted, Luke chapter 19, I said 17 before, I'm sorry, uh, Luke 19, verse 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. Uh, what would you like? You don't need to be sorry. Would you like to take them all? Why don't you just take the whole lot? Anyway. <laughs> we were out at a wedding uh, last night. No, what's today? Saturday on Thursday night, and they had really nice popcorn chicken. and uh, And the guy came to us, and he had nearly a full bowl of it. And so I just reached in. There was a group of three of us there, and I just took the whole bowl and said thanks. And uh, he didn't quite know what to do at that point. And they said, "Nobody's ever done that before." I said, "All right, I'll put it back." <laughs> Uh, so uh, Luke chapter 19 uh, verse 9 Today salvation has come to this household because he too is the son of Abraham For the son of man came to seek and to save What's the next word? Don't say it out loud because I don't want to embarrass you What's the next word there? Most Christians, unless they've heard somebody like me speak into it Think the next word is those For the son of man has come to seek and to save those who are lost The original language is not those the original language is that or what. So Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that or what which was lost. That word lost can also be translated destroyed. And so Jesus is saying of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save something that is attached to someone because we know in John 3.16 that it talks about whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. And so salvation is about people but Jesus was saying the most significant thing about salvation is that I'm, I'm actually saving something that is attached to someone that was destroyed so the question we've got to ask ourselves is what is the something what is the that or what which was lost or destroyed we find the answer in the verse before today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham it was his identity he could only, it could only be a son of Abraham because Jesus hadn't died and risen from the dead to be a son of God. But when we came to faith, Jesus wanted us to be saved, but we weren't saved to avoid going to hell. We weren't even saved to go to heaven. We were saved to be restored into the family of God and become his children. That's why you were born again, that you will become a child of God. So 
why am I saying that? So then we've got to ask ourselves, well, where was it destroyed? Where was our identity destroyed? We go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're in the garden and the devil turns up and, uh, and he, he wants to take Adam and Eve away from a relationship with the Father and bring them into a relationship with himself. And so he turns up in the garden and his whole purpose is to get them to make what I call a great exchange. He wanted them to exchange their oneness with God for being like God. So they were one with God. They got to name the animals with God. God walked with them in the cool of the evening. They saw God as their father. They were his children. They were one with God. But the devil turns up and suggests to them, there's actually something that God's trying to keep from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so he comes and says, has God said? And he starts to get Eve in particular and then Adam follows. Actually, God is holding something back from us. And we are going to listen to what you are saying, Mr. Snake, rather than to what God has told us. And so in doing that, he tempted them to exchange their oneness with God for being like God. They saw that being like God was more important. I wonder what would have happened at that point if they'd gone, time out, we need to talk about this with God, with the Father, because he's actually told us not to eat from that fruit. What I think not only is the devil going after in terms of identity, he's also going after the issue of lordship. He wants them to exchange lordship. He wants them to exchange the lordship of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit to being lorded over by the devil. And so Adam and Eve fell for it. They exchanged their oneness with God. Their identity as children of God was destroyed in the garden. It was lost in the garden. And so this is why Jesus says, as the second Adam, the most important thing that I have come to do is to restore your identity and your position as children of God. That's what your salvation is all about. And so I want to ask you today to consider that you were born again. God chose you not so you could avoid hell and not even so that you could go to heaven. They are byproducts of what he actually wanted to do. He wants you to know that you are in his family and that you are one with him and he is one with you. That he dwells in you, that you are led by him, that you are a child of God and that he gave you a whole new identity. What we find, uh, and I mentioned this last night to the leaders, is that uh, Zacchaeus, there are four things buried inside of this story in Luke 19. We're told that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. We're told that he's rich. We're told that he's small in stature. And we're told that he's a sinner. These are the four things that we tend to identify our identity through. Most of us think of ourselves, our identity and our value and worth is attached to what we do, how much money we've got, what we look like and how we see ourselves spiritually. We define ourselves and our value and our worth on the basis of the fruitfulness of our lives, not the relationship that we have with Jesus. So I, uh, when I first started, when I left school, I was one of the early adopters of the, what they now call a gap year. Back then it was just working to get some money to put yourself through university. And, uh, and so I had a year off. I worked at Canberra Hospital um, because I was raised in Canberra as an adolescent. 
Um, and I worked in Canberra Hospital as a theatre orderly. Uh, back in the day, they were called wardsmen. And so I used to go up into the wards and get all the people to bring them down for their various surgeries, help get them positioned on the operating tables, have to take the specimens around a pathology and had to help out generally uh, within the theatre complex. In a hospital, uh, there is a pecking order of the most valuable people. At the top is a brain surgeon. At the bottom are the cleaners. The next person up from the cleaners are the theatre orderlies. And so I was treated by charge nurses and doctors and stuff as though I was an idiot and that I really didn't matter. I just had to do what they wanted me to do. I'm still the same person today as I was then, although probably a little bit more wiser. Um, but there was a brain surgeon there who figured out that I actually did have a really good brain in my head. Um, and we got to build a relationship so much so that he'd let me look down the microscope into people's brains. I have enormous admiration for brain surgeons. When I looked down there, all I could see was blood and grey matter. I've got no idea how they're figuring out what's actually going on down there. But I've watched about just a, about every operation you can possibly think of, and I've got some really gross stories that I'm not going to tell you today. Um, but, but what I am really pointing to is that as a theatre orderly, my identity was, you are not as valuable as the rest of us. And we tend to think of ourselves like that, and we tend to think of other people like that. If we meet somebody that has five houses around the world and they've got a private jet and they have helicopters and they have people who serve them, we tend to see them as being more significant to hang out with than the single mother who's got two kids who's really struggling to make life work. We've got this internal bias around identity, around what people do. We then have a bias around how much they own. It's the same for us. We think that we're more important if we live in a certain sort of house or a certain suburb or, you know, etc. Uh, certainly uh, people in impoverished parts of the world, and some of which I get to travel to, they look up to us as though we've got something to offer them. More often than not, they've got something to offer me because their life... Is, is less complex and much simpler than mine and they actually so the people in Mozambique who live in the villages that you know that I go to their simple relationship with God is so uncluttered compared to the complexity of mine um, not that I want to be poor uh, I'm not saying that but but they look to us because of our wealth and they're looking to us because they think we're more important than they are uh, what we look like it's the same thing white skin the world is defined by white skin as being superior uh, as a white male who lives in the 20, you know, 21st century Western city, I am an incredibly privileged human being, amazingly privileged compared to so many other people. Um, but our appearance, we, we tend to define ourselves by appearance. We dress in a certain way to express our identity. Um, if I turned up today dressed as a goth, if I had all black eyebrows and black makeup, black you know, um, nail polish on and dressed in black, you would think, what on earth is Andrew doing? Who? <laughs> How does that happen? We tend to categorise people by what they look like, by you know, the way they dress. I was in London about a month ago, and geez, people dress really interestingly in London. There is such a wide range of the way that people uh, dress there, and it's very easy to look at them and put them in a box on the basis of what they dress like. And then the final thing that we draw our identity from is how we see ourselves spiritually. And this goes back to how we feel loved by God. Am I loved on a performance or loved by acceptance? And so it's, I don't think it's any accident that those four things are in that story because Jesus is wanting to say, your identity has been changed. Don't see yourself in the way the world sees you. See yourself in the way that I see you. 
And so part of this identity change is recognising that we've been restored to oneness with God. And it's a really important piece of us bearing witness to the kingdom that we actually know who we really are in Christ. We understand the authority that we have in Christ. We understand what we can speak to and see it change like sickness, that we can speak to issues in our lives and see God turn up, that, that we understand uh, in, in, what I should just modify that a little bit. I think there are two ways that we receive things from God. We receive what we need through being like a child. Come to me as a little child, climb up to my lap. It's identity. But there are other places where we receive uh, based stuff on the basis of um, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence take it by force on the basis of authority. And so my prayer life is a rich mixture of identity as a child but then also warfare with authority and understanding which one of those two I'm meant to step into at various times. Am I meant to receive it as something I need or do I receive it as something that I desire? But the, if we're going to restore everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be, we have to wrestle this issue to the ground that I actually have been restored to oneness with God and my whole identity has been changed. Inside of uh, the... So, so what is it that I'm actually trying to restore? Um, inside of the temptation in the garden... Uh, there is an issue called judgment that we need to wrestle with if we're going to restore oneness back to the way that God originally intended it to be. And so the devil judged that as Lucifer the archangel, he could rule heaven better than God. He made the judgment in his own heart, the five eye wills of Isaiah. I can do this better than you. I'm judging that I'm better at this than you are. And he tried to overtake heaven and we know that he got kicked out. So he is the progenitor of judgment. He is the one that conceived of the idea that he could judge and be Lord like God was Lord. The reason that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the garden is because God is saying to Adam and Eve, I am the, I am the only one that can judge properly. I'm the only one that can be Lord. And if you eat from that tree, you are going to assume that you can be Lord. Because the one thing that is unique to me as God is that I can judge accurately because I know everything. I'm omniscient. You can't because you only know in part and see in part. So, so the devil comes to Adam and Eve. And as I said before, he offers two points of judgment to them to tempt them. He tempted them with judgment. Has God said? Judging God's intent and motive. And then, no, sorry, judging the word of God. And then saying, God's holding something back from you, judging God's intent and motive. And so he got them to judge the word of God, as God said, and then he got them to judge God's intent and motive. He's holding something back from you. He, he doesn't want you to be like him. And so he used judgment to tempt them into his world of judgment. And as soon as they ate from that fruit, there were three things that happened. They judged themselves. We were naked. They judged God. We're afraid of you. They judge one another. She made me do it. And so the kingdom of darkness, its whole modus of operation is judgment. The father of the kingdom of darkness, Satan, is the author of judgment, that he tried to be Lord. And he wanted us to believe that we didn't need God to be Lord, that we could be the Lord of our own lives. We could make our own decisions about what was right and wrong. And so what happened was that we actually exchanged fathers in the garden. We exchanged God from being our father 
and Adam and Eve took us as the human race into the devil being our father. And so before we came to Christ, we were living in a kingdom who has a father and he's a father of judgment. And his whole kingdom is based on judgment. Is getting you to believe that you know what is right and wrong. Getting us to believe that we can make our own decisions without reference to God. Getting us to believe that judgment is an okay thing for us to do. Now the problem with this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, Judge not lest you be judged. The word judge there means to scatter. So we've exchanged our oneness with God and oneness is an expression of love and love gathers. So when I love like God loves, when I love from acceptance, I gather people to myself. But when I love people through judgment, I scatter. And so as soon as I'm... So this is why I have such significant problems with us judging the world and the morality of the world in which we live. Because all that happens is that we scatter ourselves from the world. It's not our role to judge the world. It's not our role to tell them what's wrong. It's our role to love them. I'm actually called to love my enemies, not judge them. I'm called to bless those who persecute me, who curse me. I'm called to be a person who gathers. And so people say, yeah, but we've got to defend you know, the, the kingdom of God. We've got to defend the values of the kingdom of God. So you're, going, you're telling me that you're happy to throw pearls before swine because my Bible tells me that people who don't believe don't understand spiritual things. So you're trying to bring spiritual reality to somebody who doesn't understand. You're casting pearl before swine. Why do you even think that God needs us to defend his morality? If we, if we think God, if God is big enough to put the whole universe together, he's okay. He can look after all of this. Um, now, having said that, there is a way of defending the kingdom of God through love rather than through judgment. So if we talk about the, the, the difficult and vexed issue of abortion. And so let me just say to any women that are in the room today, if you've had an abortion, I totally get it. And my next comments are not at all to be heard as being criticism of you, nor do I condemn you for having an abortion, which is one of my big problems with the way that the religious right goes about talking about abortion. The issue from my point of view is that all the research shows that 85 to 90% of women who had an abortion felt they had no choice. The issue for me is why aren't we talking about the role of men when it comes to abortion? They're the ones who dipped the stick and created the problem. Why shouldn't they be held responsible? What, what, what is it that we should be you know, having a conversation about the role of men in this whole thing? So, so let, let me just go back. So ladies, if you have had an abortion, I'm not in any way speaking from a place of judgment uh, or condemnation at all. I, if anything, I sympathise with you that you were put in a position where you had no choice. Um, and I apologise on behalf of the stupid man that put you in that position, um, even though it was possibly consensual. But it, you know, anyway, we don't need to go there. Um, but when it comes to the issue of abortion, rather than judging people, why don't we go about offering an alternative that can help them make another decision? Why do we make the laws in our country so restrictive about adoption? Why don't we create spaces where women can actually have the child and then hand the child over into an adoptive situation? Why, why aren't we trying to find ways of supporting? So it's a, it's a decision that women regret. Um, at times, although sometimes they're married and they just feel they don't have the economic wherewithal. But 
But we, we can actually engage in these issues through love. Um, it's the same with the same-sex conversation. Um, these are people that need to be loved. They're not a people that... We make it an issue. We make abortion an issue and we make same-sex an issue, but there's actually people in there that are just like us who have got emotions and feelings. And, and so... Sure. No, 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 you keep going. Yep, I'll just say no. <laughs> sure. Mhm. Sure. It's a really great question. I thank you for asking it. Um, the way that we've found that we have to navigate our way through here is that we have to be able to offer commentary without it becoming criticism and we have to be able to offer observation without it becoming judgment. And so in making disciples, I'll come back to the church thing, I'm just going down a little bit of a rabbit burrow to uh, help illustrate what I'm trying to say. When I'm making disciples with my team, I have to be able to offer them commentary and say, have you thought about how that behaviour is impacting other people? I'm not criticising, I just want you to think about it. I'd, I want to help your emotional intelligence at this point. Um, can I offer you some commentary about the way that you're managing the hardship that you're currently in and the way that you're turning away from God? Can we look at this as a way of, you know, as I was talking about last night, that you can actually draw closer to God? And so I've got to be able to offer commentary without it being criticism. I've got to be able to offer observation without it being judgment. Um, I can offer a perspective and a point of view without raising a, wrist, a fist and saying, I'm now going to make you the bad guy. Um, and so in, in our world at Stairway, there are no good guys and no bad guys. I might disagree with somebody, but I won't make you a bad guy You're, because God doesn't make you a bad guy. So, so with the church, in the way that you described it, I have to be able to offer commentary, that's not going to work for me. Um, if that's the way that you want to go, uh, you'll have to sort that out. But I can't live with that. That's, that's not acceptable to me. Um, if it's acceptable to you, then you'll have to figure that out with your maker. Uh, and so it becomes complex because, uh, in, you know, so in the Uniting Church, I'm aware of, there may be other stories, but I'm aware of a story in Queensland where all of their property was owned by, by the Uniting Church. And so the people that wanted to leave, the pastor and 80% of the congregation had to leave all the property behind. And so that feels unjust but I'm not sure that God wants us to make justice a higher issue than love. Yeah. I'm not sure that he wants us to make justice a higher issue than oneness. And so, um, so what we're trying to explore is how do I live in oneness when I disagree with you? How, how do I actually maintain a posture of you're a wonderful human being? We just happen to disagree. Ask away. Mhm. 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 Um I think there's uh a number of different layers inside of this conversation. So uh from my perspective the Bible doesn't say anything about same-sex orientation per se. It talks about the behavior of same-sex orientation. The next thing that I'd say is that there are only five scriptures that talk about the behaviour of same-sex orientation. I think that we, um, 
we begin to lose the credibility of the conversation if we want to base our position around just those five scriptures. For me, the question of same-sex orientation sits inside of the larger biblical narrative of family and the way that God created family and what family and that you actually you need a man and a woman to get a child and that there's a, a two men or two women together can't have, have children. And so for me, the bigger conversation is help me understand how the same-sex theology works inside of that bigger family framework. Um, and so I, w- I want to have theological conversations around that. But in having those theological conversations, it's a knowing and being known conversation, not a telling for the purpose of agreement conversation. So I'm wanting to try and understand on the other side of the conversation, how have you come to your conclusions? Help me see how you got there. I'm now going to hope you're going to re- return the same thing to me. Let me help you see how I've got there. Um, the best book that I've read on this, if anybody's interested, is a book called A People to be Loved. Uh, and it's by a guy called Preston Sprinkle, um, which is an unfortunate name uh, for most Australians. Um, uh, the the forward of the book um, is actually written by somebody who affirms same-sex marriage, but the body of the book goes through all the different theological arguments, and Preston himself is somebody who has a traditional perspective, not a progressive perspective. And so it's an extraordinarily well-written book. It's written in a very conversational way. Um, And so we would want to have those conversations with people around, help us to understand what your theology is, help us understand how you got there, and then uh, us to be able to have the same opportunity to talk with them about that. The next level of the conversation is, um, is the person that we're talking about uh, celibate or in a relationship? Um, So for us, uh, sexual activity is meant to be in the side a marriage relationship and so if there is a opposite sex attracted person who wants to be in leadership and they're in a sexual relationship outside of marriage we won't allow that to take place the reason being imitate me as i imitate christ that that more is caught than taught and so there's a certain level of purity and holiness that we want to see inside of people who are leading others because they're following them. Um, and so if, it's a, if the same-sex person is celibate and they're just identifying as being same-sex attracted, the next level of the conversation is are they, are they trying to proselytise people? Are they trying to bring people into their worldview, which is different to the worldview of our community of faith? And at that point, it's a conversation of honour and respect. I need you, same-sex orientated person, to honour and respect that this is a community of faith that God has given us as a group of leaders the privilege of shepherding, has given us the privilege of deciding what we believe is the right way for this community of faith to be led. Um, If you want to be a part of that community of faith on that basis, understanding that we're exercising our privilege to the best of our ability with gentleness and kindness and, and clarity of thought around theology, if you want to be a part of it, then you'll need to be a part of how we see things. Um, and we, want, we need you to honour and respect us in that. If you can't do that, then there are plenty of other churches that you can go to that believe what you believe. Um, so the final level uh, of the conversation is it's a same-sex person who has been married in the eyes of the law 
uh, is coming to our church and has two children and they want to come into a position of leadership? Um, that's a really complex question right there. Um, and I've yet, as a pastor, to have to figure out an answer to it. I'm not relishing the day when I have to figure out an answer to it. But I think where I probably will land is um, because of what we as a group of elders believe as our historical theological perspective, we will be unable to allow you to step into that place of leadership um, because it opens the door for other same-sex orientated people to believe that the lifestyle that you're living is something that we endorse. Um, we're not critical of it. We would offer commentary that we don't. It's not a lifestyle that we would agree with. But the truth is I've got a bunch of fornicators in my church. I just don't know who they are. I've got a bunch of adulterers in there. I just don't know who they are. I've got hundreds of gossips. I do know who some of them are. Um, <laughs> So, um, so if I'm aware that somebody's an adulterer or a fornicator, they're not going to get into a position of leadership either. Um, and so, but I, but I do love you, same-sex couple with two children. Um, I believe in you and I care for you, and uh, I'm happy for us to agree to disagree and stay in the same space. Um, but, but I, I need you to honour the privilege that God has given me of shepherding this group of people because I one day I stand before God as a teacher and, I, and I, I suffer twice as much as everybody else I get double the judgment of everybody else so I need you to understand this is a really big issue for me because I'm thinking about my eternal destiny uh, as a teacher here and I'm not going to punish you because you disagree with me I'm not going to criticize you I'm not going to judge you but but I do need you to recognize the position that I find myself in um, and so that's where we would reach for love and honour and respect and kindness uh, in it all. I've thought about it long and hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, up the back. Yeah. Thank you. 
I appreciate the commentary and I think it's helpful. Is there a question in there or? Okay, okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. No, thank you, that's great. While we're here in this question space, anyone else got any questions? <laughs> All right. Um, let's go to John chapter 8 and just uh, see a couple of things inside of here um, that I hope will, will be helpful. So we're talking about restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be. God originally intended us to live in oneness. Um, our capacity to live in oneness is deeply undermined by our lifestyle of judgment. Um, and so we do have significant lifestyles of judgment. We're all very quick to judge how other people drive on the road. We have horns and fingers to show them what we think. Um, we're very quick to judge how people raise their children. We're very quick to judge how people like me communicate and preach. Uh, we have opinions about everything. We live in a culture that wants us to have opinions about everything. We live in a culture that puts up television news stories that are more about opinion than fact um, and they put up two different opinions and get you to choose sides. Uh, we see this taking place in, uh, in all sorts of different parts of the world at the minute because whether you're aware of it or not, there is a, there's actually a, a cultural battle going on at the minute between sovereignty and globalisation. Um, and so what you see in America, what you see in Brexit, what you see in Poland, what you see in a whole bunch of different countries at the minute is a, a war between people who want countries to be sovereign, make America great again, and those who believe in globalisation. We need to keep the whole trading system the way it currently is because we all benefit from it. Um, and so, so there's, I'm 63. Um, I have not seen in my short lifetime division like this across the world in all of my life. The closest thing to it was when I was 16 and 17 and we were in the Vietnam War and people of my age were terrified of conscription because my birthday might get drawn out of a hat and I have to go and shoot guns at people. Um, and so, but that's about as, as bad as it, you know, it got in my lifetime anyway. And, um, and so, so judgment, social media, good Lord, um, it should be killed personally as a sanctified opinion. Um, but uh, but the, the level of judgment and it's like people say on social media things they'd never say to you if you're sitting across the table having a coffee. Um, and so, so we, we live it. So if everything's going to be restored back to the way that God originally intended it to be, if the supreme rule and reign of Jesus is going to be in my life, then I have to pay attention. How am I promoting oneness? What am I personally doing to promote oneness? John 17, uh, verse 23, The glory which you have given to me, this is Jesus praying, The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And so Jesus spent quite a bit of that prayer about praying about oneness has been really important to him. And that as we pursued oneness, the world would know that the Father sent the Son. Um, and that God loves people just like he loved Jesus. And so the word glory there means to offer a personal opinion that gives value. It's not the mythical or mystical, sorry, not mythical, mystical crowd that came, cloud that came down in the temple in the Old Testament and they all fell on their faces. 
Now the word glory there means to offer a personal opinion that gives value. So Jesus is saying, Father, the personal opinion that you offer of me that gives me value, I now offer of them. So let me just say this to you as a sideline. God only ever offers personal opinions that give you value. Jesus is never saying anything about you other than it gives you what gives value to you. So, Father, the personal opinion that you offer of me that gives me value, I give to them that they may be one just as we are one. What's he saying? He's saying, I hope that they can realise that our oneness is achieved because we only offer personal opinions that give one another value. So if you're wanting to pursue oneness, if you're wanting to restore oneness back to the way that God originally intended it to be, if you're wanting to be a person where love gathers rather than where judgment scatters, one of the most concrete things that you can do is to think from today onwards, whenever you're talking about anybody else, will you only ever offer personal opinion that gives them value? Now, let me put a subtext in here. I'm not saying that you have to trust everybody. There are some people in the room that you have been deeply abused by somebody and one of the hardest things in the world would be for you to offer a personal opinion that gives them value because in part, if you did that, you felt like you were having to start to trust them again. Trust is something that's earned. I can offer a personal opinion that gives value to people that have deeply hurt me and rejected me and betrayed me, but I don't have to trust them. Um, I can offer personal opinions that give everybody value because they're a creation of God and all of their sin has been forgiven. And often what stops me from doing this is that I, is I haven't forgiven them. And so the first issue of I need to wrestle, can I actually step into a place of forgiveness here? Because the Lord, that's the Lord's best that he wants for me. If I can't, then am I prepared to go on a journey? And that journey might take 10 years, but at least if I'm going on the journey, that's a good thing. Um, and so... So offer a personal opinion that gives value. What would that look like if that's what you did from today on? Subtext is making those that have abused you and hurt you badly. The second thing is, I've said it a couple of times today, we do have to, when we're making disciples, I've got to be able to offer commentary, not criticism. I've got to be able to offer observation, not judgment. And so I can offer a personal opinion that gives you value by offering commentary about something in your life that's not working for others without it becoming critical. I don't actually have to punish you. I don't have to demonise you. I don't have to make you the bad guy. I can give you a personal opinion that gives you value, but still say, but there's these things in your life that I think you should really pay attention to because I think God wants to help you in those spaces. Um, and so, so we live in this world of judgment. I alluded to it you know, with the person in Lumo Energy, with the guy who wants to run these bomb, dete bomb detection stuff over me in Auckland Airport when I'm too tired to be nice. Um, and, and so there's, there's all these places of judgment that we, we just naturally go to. Um, we judge our spouses all the time. We judge our children all the time. Um, and that judgment, it, it scatters. Judgment will always scatter. And so if I am going to, if I really believe that, that oneness, just like love, and you commandment, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, just like this prayer, Father, I pray that the glory that you've given to me, I give to them so that they might be one. If we really believe these things are important to the Lord and that we're being restored back to the way that God originally intended them to be, to be one in the family of God, to be one with one another. Um, this is why there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. The most often thing Paul said was, he said 169, something like Christ within you, you in Christ, dwelling in Christ, God within you. The second thing he spoke about the most was the one another's of the Bible. Love one another, forgive one another, serve one another. Um, why are those two things so important to Paul? 
because the goal of his instruction was love. He understood that you can only really love people when you know how much you're loved and that God dwells in you and that you can really only be one with one another when you make it a priority. Um, and so, uh, so in that space, one of the biggest things that we're wrestling with is judgment. One of the biggest things that we, we face is this tendency and capacity inside of us to want to judge other people and make them the bad guy. So not only should I, could I, would I offer to you the thought that if you want to be restoring everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be with oneness, that you offer a personal opinion that gives value. The second thing, which I've already said, is don't make anybody the bad guy. There are no bad guys. They're all good guys, some of whom make mistakes. But there's no bad guys. Because as soon as you make a bad guy, you can't be one with them. You, it's, it's oil and water. Um, you, you've got to figure out we, we really struggle with this because we go surely I don't have to love that person surely I don't have to speak well of them I mean they don't deserve it well as soon as you use the word deserve you're around performance again all of this stuff is so ingrained in us that we don't even realise it's there and we validate it and we justify it because everybody else does it and so whether you want to embrace this or not is entirely up to you. Um, I'm just offering you some thoughts and insights that I've garnered that I think I've committed myself to and at Stairway we as a community of faith are committing ourselves to and that as we do, I see the blessing of God moving towards us. Um, God loves unity. Psalm 133, most of us in the room will know it. God pours out a blessing where there's unity. Why? Because it speaks of the nature of the Godhead. The Godhead are one with one another. Jesus prayed about it. What, this is what defines us. We're one with one another. Yeah. And because this is what defines us, this is what our family on earth should look like as well. It defines us in heaven, so let's let it define it on earth, that, that place of oneness. Um, so with all of that rambling in mind, um, let me read from John chapter 8, verse 31. I have spoken for a long time. Flipping heck, we've only got 35 minutes left. You must all be tired of the sound of my voice by now. <laughs> so what are, we, are we going to take a 10-minute break and I'll come back or am I going to land this and we finish early? I'm probably happy to land it. But yeah. Okay, I'll land it and we'll go home early. All right. Uh, so John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. I want you to notice here that he's talking to Jews who had believed him. They hadn't believed in him. So he's speaking to a group of people who have believed him. If you continue in my word. So he's talking about faith as a journey. He's talking about faith as a process. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he's saying there's another step here. That is, there's something that you need to keep moving forward in. You believe me at the minute. You're moving towards being my disciples. And so this is where the idea comes, the angle scale, that the most unsafe person is at minus 10 and the most godly person is at 10. And we're all on this journey of discipleship. Um, I probably started my journey around minus 6 or minus 7. 
and, and I gradually came, I became a Christian at zero, but I was, I've continued to become a disciple of Jesus. And, but I was becoming a disciple of Jesus when I started at minus six or minus seven. That my journey started in the negative, but then it moves into the positive. So it's a, it's a continuous thing, becoming a disciple of Jesus. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. So this Greek word here, know, is the same as the one in Ephesians 3.19, to know by experience and encounter. So the knowledge that you have of the word of God in your head doesn't set you free. It's the knowledge you have of God in your heart that sets you free by experience and encounter. So, so some Christians say, well, I don't feel free. I, I'm still struggling with things. Well, you, you might know in your head that you should, excuse me, forgive those people, but you actually haven't. So what we've got to do is help you have an experience in your heart of knowing how much you've been forgiven so you can actually then give that forgiveness away to other people. You've got to be able to realise just how much of a despot you really were in the eyes of God and not think that you were less a sinner than other people, but that Jesus' death and agony on the cross was a price he paid for you. And once you begin to realise that, that that's the price that was paid for you, then you, you should be able to pay a price of humility and forgiveness towards somebody else. But it's only when you know that in your heart. If, you, if you're arguing with me in your head, you, you're not actually going to find, your, find the freedom you're looking for. The other way I say this is that if you want to forgive deeply, you have to be hurt deeply. Um, and so you'll only know how deeply you can forgive based on how deeply you've been hurt. You can think you can forgive deeply, but when you're deeply hurt, are you actually able to deeply forgive? Yeah. Anyway, verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They've, they've already missed what Jesus is talking about, which we probably would have as well. They've identified slavery as being an external issue. Jesus is identifying slavery as an internal issue. He's saying the truth will set you free. It's internally in your heart. They're going, we're Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How does it say you will become free? That They're missing the point. They're missing what Jesus is trying to say to them. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin which was my thought earlier in the day about lying and that if you keep lying, you're actually in a prison and Jesus came to set you free from the prison. So you're a slave to that prison. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's de descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. This, scripture, these, this phrase can also be translated, my word makes no progress in you. And so, so Jesus is saying to them, the problem that you're facing is that my word's not making any progress in you. So he's speaking to people who believe in him. And he's saying, my word's not making progress in you. You've got to about minus two, which you haven't got over the line yet. But whether you're at minus six or plus six, the question that we all face in this discipleship journey is it's how is the word of God making progress in us? It's about how much the word of God is transforming us and the lordship of Christ being exercised through us believing that what God says, he asks of us, we need to give ourselves to. And so I speak these things, um, I have seen with my father, therefore you, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Now he's really sticking it up them. Saying, first of all, my word's not making progress in you. And now I'm telling you, I actually have a father that you don't have. You've got a different father to me. 
Remember, he's speaking to people who believe him. They haven't believed in him. And so he's now, he's now really, I mean, Jesus just loves to twist. You know. <laughs> they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So here Jesus is identifying the truth that until we actually believe in the resurrection, we have been following another father. That in the garden, we exchange fathers. I say we because Adam and Eve did it on our behalf. And when we were born into the world, we actually were in the kingdom of darkness, which is the kingdom of judgment. It was Satan was the founder of judgment. He brought Adam and Eve to eat the tree, through ju- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil through judgment. And then they started to judge because that was the tree of knowing good and evil. And so, so he's, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come forth from God and I've not even come to my, on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And so, so the word's not making progress in them and they can't hear his word. Why? Because of religious tradition. Because they have a, they have a concept of who God is as a father that they is blocking them from actually seeing who Jesus is. Their sense of God as a father is based in this whole performance law-based thing that we talked about earlier this morning where Jesus is saying, I'm actually representing God as a God of grace, as a God of healing, as a God who doesn't have to follow the rules and regulations because that's not what defines us. Verse 44, this is the verse that we all like to pull out. You are of your father the devil. So before you came to Christ, if Jesus was talking to you like this, he'd say, you're of your father the devil. So I'm on the lawns of Sydney University. I'm a Marxist student politician who thinks religion is an opiate for the masses. I think Christians are nerds. I'm on the lawns. I sit by my own because I know that Christians love to come to people sitting on their own to witness to them. So I become honey to the bees. Um, They come and start to talk to me about their faith and and I argue with them. I win the argument logically because I can stay ahead of most people with logic. Um, But and, And unfortunately argued some of them out of their faith. And in that situation, God would have said to me, you're of your father, the devil, Peter. And he would say the same thing of all of us before we came to faith. You're of your father, the devil. So I sounded pretty much like my dad. If you were to ring my dad on the phone and he was saying to the phone, you'd, you'd have to think, is that Peter or is that Dennis? Um, there are all the sort of little quirky mannerisms that I have that I, I see in my dad. Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> I, I, I even see it in my grandchildren with their parents. You know, I watch some of the expressions on their face and they go, that's just like your mother. <laughs> and that's like her mother. <laughs> and and so, so when Jesus says to us, you are of your father the devil, we don't come into this thing called the Christian life without carrying some of those mannerisms and carrying some of those traits with us. And so, so one of those traits that we bring in with us is judgment. 
And, and I want to say to you as strongly as I can as a choleric leader that's trying to live with grace, judgment, when you make judgments, you're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you are serving the work of darkness. You may have a father who is God, and I totally, I, I'm on board with that. I have a father who's God as well. But when I judged that guy in Auckland who wanted to test me for bombs and I didn't give him my best, I was doing the work of darkness at that point. And there's some pretty disappointing moments when you actually stop and think about it like that. But if I don't stop and think about it like that, I'll never change. Because I validate it and I justify it and I give it a reason that God's not. Now, is God upset and angry with me? No, because he's forgiven me for all of my sin. He's forgiven me for doing that. He's, I don't have to feel condemnation. I've just got to go, Peter, what's that all about? What gives you the right to feel that you can do that? Where does that come from? How did you ever begin to believe that that was an appropriate way to treat that person? Um, there's some really good questions for me to ask. I'm still discovering the answers, but, um, but it's, it's all motivated by the fact that I actually want to bear witness to the kingdom of God. I, I genuinely want to restore everything back to the way that God originally intended it to be. I do want the supreme rule and reign of Jesus' authority to be the cornerstone of my life. And my suggestion to all of us today, uh, as we've gone through this time together, is would we make that a priority? Would we actually realise that this is really significant to the Lord? And I don't do it to be condemning or judging. I, hopefully I've exposed enough of my own sort of struggles in here for you to realise this is just part of the journey. But, but Jesus did say, this is how we'd be known as his disciples, by our love for one another. I have to restore love back to the way that God originally intended to be. The world will know the Father sent the Son by your oneness with one another. So I need to restore oneness back to the way that God originally intended to be. What's the enemy of the way that I love? The enemy is performance. What's the enemy of oneness? The enemy is judgment. So if I'm going to restore things back to the way God originally intended them to be, I need to turn my attention to either to, towards how I give and receive love on the basis of performance. And if I'm going to pursue oneness, I need to turn my attention to the way that I judge and that I actually invite the Holy Spirit into those spaces in my life. And as I invite them in, as I said before out of John chapter 16, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit, so I use the illustration of lying, so I'm inviting the Holy Spirit showing me that I'm a prisoner, I'm a slave to lying, but he's showing me that because he wants to set me free. He's not showing me that to beat me up and condemn me and tell me I'm hopeless and no good. He's going, Peter, you can live better than that. You can live up here because this is who I've made you to be. So let me help you live up here and stop living down here. Um, so I, in all that I'm talking about, I don't live with guilt and condemnation around this stuff. I live with a degree of disappointment at times. I'm disappointed in myself. Um, but I quickly try and turn that disappointment back towards the fact that God loves me and this is an opportunity for me to grow. Yeah. Rather than turning disappointment towards judgment and I'm hopeless and maybe God doesn't like me as much as I would like to think that he does. Um, and so, you know, these, these scriptures here... Uh, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? 
He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Um, and, and so he was, he was basically saying, you believe me, but you're yet to get over the line to believe in me. When you get over the line, you'll be of God. But I do want to suggest to you that even when we get over the line, the word still needs to make progress in us. And whilst we might hear the word, if we're living with lies, the lies that are in us will fight the word of God. The lies in us will resist the truth of the word of God. And so the lie that I have to defend myself because I feel unsafe right now will cause me to judge you and push you away rather than living in the truth that I'm accepted by God so therefore I don't really care how you feel about me. That doesn't give me the right to be arrogant and proud. I still will be humble and gracious and kind towards you. But I'm not going to be moved by what you think about me because I'm moved by what God thinks about me. If you offer me commentary that I can see, yeah, I, actually I, I need to change that, I will be moved by that, but I won't be moved by it in a need, out of a desire to please you, I'll be moved by it out of a desire to thank you for showing me something that I couldn't see. And so, so our, our spirituality starts to get caught up in the ways of God and how God actually works with us so that we learn to step into the fullness of everything God has for us rather than living under the torturous lies of the devil that constantly wants to beat us up and tell us we're no good and we're hopeless and we'll never make it. And there endeth my soliloquy for the day.